The following sermon was delivered on June 20th, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Ministerial assistant Zach Groff delivered this sermon entitled Risky Faith on Ruth 1, 6-22. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Boys and girls, I want you to imagine you're in a really, really nice house. I mean like a really nice house with lots of really nice things all around you. And and you're walking through the rooms and as you walk through one doorway into, let's say, the dining room, a shiny crystal lampstand over here on your left catches your eye and then distracts you from a fine clay vase on the floor over to your right so that you bump into the vase and knock it over and it breaks into several pieces on the hard floor. Oh no, what are you gonna do with that? Well, you might think you have one option, that is to clean up the vase as quickly as possible and throw it away because there's no fixing it. But on the contrary, you do have a second option. You can take that broken vase and its pieces and you can take it to an expert, an artist, specializing in the Japanese art of kintsugi, or kintsukuroi, which means golden repair. Perhaps you've seen some of the products of this particular form of art. They're beautiful. This artist could take the pieces of that fine clay vase or whatever and and put them back together using a mixture of gold and lacquer and other precious metals as a kind of glue which then shines forth with brilliance, attracting the eye to those, those intricate lines of fracture, recreating the vase, taking it from something broken and destroyed and and making it something uniquely beautiful and useful once again. That vase would then tell a story by those intricate cracks and lines of gold cut throughout it. A story of destruction, because of your clumsiness, mind you, but then followed by repair because of the expertise of a fine artist resulting in sheer beauty and again usefulness. Well, last week we began the book of Ruth with an account of great tragedy and loss. You remember, the man Elimelech led his family from Bethlehem, which is called the house of bread, in God's promised land, and he takes them into the field of Moab, a place where, once again, as I said, he experienced death and childlessness, leaving no heir to his name. At the end of verse 5, Elimelech's wife Naomi is left bereft of her husband and two sons, left behind, if you will, with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Thus you have three widows in the field of Moab. Tonight we pick up at verse 6. Naomi hears good news, doesn't she? She hears good news specifically out of Bethlehem that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. Hope, it springs up once again. The story shifts, and we begin to see now how this broken and empty Israelite Judean family um, of widows now might have a future of usefulness and beauty, how God, the master artist and craftsman, is going to put them back together. We're starting to get a hint of that. The pivot point in the story is Naomi and Ruth's risky but settled and sincere faith 
in Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant Lord of Israel. The action recorded in verses 6 through 22, what we're, what we're considering this evening, teaches us something about this risky but well-placed faith in the Lord. Where it comes from, how it is tested and tried, and then what kind of character it ultimately produces in those who possess it. In fact, by these verses, the Bible teaches that faith in God is a believing, proven, and humble response to the good news of God's sovereign grace. Faith in God is a believing, proven, and humble response to the good news of God's sovereign grace. It really is a stunning picture, even as we come to the end of chapter 1, and the rest of the story just gets better and better. We'll look at these verses under three headings flowing out of that statement, that truth. First, the beginning of faith in verses 6 and 7, and then we'll have the proof of faith in verses 8 to 18, where you have all that, that dialogue between um, Naomi and her daughters-in-law. And then third, the humility of faith, what is perhaps the most controversial portion of this passage in verses 19 to 22, the humility of faith. So let's begin at the beginning with the beginning of faith in verse 6. Notice what happens here. We're given a summary statement of, of what's going on. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab and we're told why, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and giving them food. And so that first half of verse 6 is a, is a simple summary of what's about to happen, and then we're given a reason for why this action takes place. Naomi had heard some good news. And at this um, hearing of news, you could have two responses. And I don't want to jump the gun too much, but I think this is a good place to say this. Naomi calls herself bitter. She renames herself Mara at the end of the passage. But that doesn't mean she's embittered against God, that she sees him as some kind of demon messing with her life. No, because if she did, she wouldn't believe a good report about him, would she? But you see at the very outset of our passage tonight that Naomi has a faith in God which Though perhaps latent, perhaps not, we don't know the details of how she lived out her life in Moab as a, as a daughter of the king, but once she hears a good report about him, she believes. She believes this good report. She believes the good news of God's grace to his people. And in this, we see the beginning of faith. The good news comes to her as a herald of God's gracious visitation. Isn't this the task of gospel preachers? Isn't this the task of each one of us, individual Christians, as we go about our lives and we're, we're not just evangelizing the lost as some kind of program, but we're just speaking of the goodness of God in our lives? We're we're, we are heralding forth the good news of who God is, that he provides and cares for his people. And she hears this report from who knows whom. Perhaps he had beautiful feet, perhaps not, as we read in Romans 10. But she hears this good news and she receives it believingly. What does it say in Romans 10, 17? You've heard it twice already. You heard it in the New Testament reading, and then we repeated it together, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so without overdoing it here, I do want to emphasize that she heard a good report about God's grace. And that is really the beginning of the beginning of her expression of faith in the rest of the passage. It's illustrated in Exodus 4.31, this uh, result of believing in what 
uh, in this good report about God. In Exodus 4.31, the people of Israel are burdened in Egypt. They're in slavery. They're in bondage. And then they hear some good news about God. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned, literally that the Lord had visited uh, the sons of Israel, that he was concerned about the sons of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshipped. Naomi was afflicted in Bethlehem. There was famine that came upon the land. She was afflicted in Moab by death and childlessness. And here she's hearing that the Lord had visited his people, that he was concerned about his people, and she gets up. She responds, and she goes by the way to return back to Bethlehem. And so we see that this believing in this good report in verse 6 is quickly followed upon by a response to the good news of God's grace in verse 7. Her rising up and returning is introductory, but her departure here, an interesting word, is used. In verse 7, we read, So she departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. The word departed there, it's different than the word that's used in, um, in verse 1 of chapter 1, where we read about a certain man uh, went to sojourn in the land of Moab. This word depart is the same word that is used to describe what the people of Israel did at the commencement of the Exodus. They departed from the land of Egypt. At the end of 430 years to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out, departed from the land of Egypt. And that's what Naomi is doing here. And so even now, the, the Jewish hearer, particularly listening to the Hebrew being read in his or her presence, would be making these connections, these connections to affliction and departure and return, and would be thinking almost right off the bat of the Exodus and how what we see here with Naomi and her two daughters-in-law is a little mini-Exodus. And as she's responding to the good news of God's grace, I've already said that she believes this good news because she believes something about God. And that is the truth expressed in Psalm 132.15, that God will bless his people. What does the psalmist say there? Um, well, actually, God says through the psalmist, I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Do you believe that God is the provider when you pray, say, for daily bread, when we say, give us this day our daily bread? Are we believing in him as provider at the basis of that prayer, of, at the basis of our response to any report about his goodness. Notice in the Westminster Shorter Catechism how it frames the fourth petition. I always found this interesting. What do we pray for in the fourth petition? In the fourth petition, which is give us this day our daily bread, we pray that of God's free gift, we may receive a competent portion of the good things of this life and enjoy his blessing with them. I don't want to read too much into it, but perhaps the authors of the catechism could have said that we pray that we may receive a competent portion of the good things of this life from God's free gift and enjoy his blessing with them. But they, they front God's free gift. Whenever you or I go to the Lord in prayer, seeking for something good, seeking for a competent portion of the good things of this life, clothing, shelter, money, food, whatever it is. 
When we're going to him and we're asking for him to provide to us, we must start with a rock-solid conviction that he is the provider. Do you see? We're not merely coming to him out of need and desperation of, I want this thing, I'm hungry for this thing, though that may be true. We're coming out of a bold conviction that he is who he says he is, that he will abundantly bless, that he will care for his people. The starting place, in other words, is God's sovereign grace, his free gift. We cry out to him in our need, but we do so first because we know that he is the provider. Some of our families here, you're seeking for children. You desperately want to see those, those little babies around your dinner table. You desperately want to be uh, woke up in the middle of the night to care for a baby. Do you believe not only that you want a baby, but do you believe that children come from the Lord? That he provides the growth to our families as surely as, as he's given us our names? Yes, we cry out to him with our need but we do so first because we know that he's the provider. I think we see that imaged for us in Naomi's response. She believes that he's the provider. And so when she hears this good news from Bethlehem, she immediately arises and goes forth out of the field of Moab to return to him, to the Lord who provides. He provides because he's gracious and good and worthy to be addressed. You know, this should really shape our prayers. When we pray supplication, typically we do so having already prayed through adoration, thanksgiving, and confession already. But that's not just because of a convenient order spelling out the acronym ACTS. Rather, we do it because all of our supplication is to be grounded in our adoration of believing who God is, that He is who He says He is, that He's sovereign. The beginning of faith is believing the report of His goodness which goes out as a herald from his church, from his people. But faith once conceived is challenged, isn't it? We've all experienced that, and we see it in our text tonight. It's challenged, tested, and in the case of those who are sincerely converted, it is proven. And so we see the proof of faith in verses 8 to 18. We've seen the beginning, and now we see the proof of faith. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. In this verse, there's a lot of discussion about what it is that Naomi's doing. If she's intentionally testing her daughters-in-law, if she's kind of wise to the varied motivations that what cause people to draw into uh, close to the people of God, and she's putting them to the test consciously, or She's concerned about their own welfare. She knows she can't really do anything for them herself. And so she's really just encouraging them to go back to Moab and, and, and not to follow after her into what is surely going to be a life of poverty. That she really sincerely wants them to get remarried. But I just want to point one thing out to you. The text doesn't really tell us what it is that Naomi's doing on the substrata of things. We just see her words. There are certain clues. I think there are well-founded views on this. But at, at heart, what I'm more concerned about is what goes on in this dialogue, not necessarily Naomi's motivations. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return, 
each of you to her mother's house. And then picking up at verse 9, she continues, May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. Why would they say this? You know, I really think Naomi was a pleasant person, and they grew devoted to her as they suffered through a common experience, as they were knit together through marriage. And I think that they really sincerely loved her and sought to follow after her. But the question that's posed is, did they seek to identify with her God, or did they merely seek to identify with her? Verse 11, Naomi said, Return, my daughters, why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go, for I'm too old to have a husband. I said I have hope if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons. Would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder, literally more bitter for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. With what is Naomi challenging her daughters-in-law? She's challenging them with that which makes perfect sense, and that is that she is no good to them. We have to do a little bit of work here to understand what exactly she's, how exactly she's making this argument. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, we're not going to go there, but we read about what's called um, the leveret marriages in the law of Israel, and that is if, if uh, a man with a brother, let's say, marries a woman, and then he dies before she bears children for him, then there's a mechanism in Israelite law for his brother to then take her as a wife and, um, and she to conceive a child on behalf of her departed husband, you see. And that offspring would then bear forth the name of her first husband, her second husband's brother, and carry forth his name in his inheritance that he and his name might be preserved in Israel. Now, the way this actually worked out uh, among the people of God in the Old Testament is a bit more mysterious, and it's difficult to pin down. But we know that this, this provision existed. And so she's referencing that law to her daughters. That suggests a couple of things about Naomi, first of all. One, that she really was a devoted, converted, um, obedient daughter of, of Yahweh, that she was an Israelite through and through, and that her daughters-in-law had gained some sort of familiarity with this, because we see it evokes a response, doesn't it? And, and she perhaps is very much concerned for them. But the language that she uses is very interesting. She says, um, may the Lord grant that you may find rest in verse 9. In verse 8, she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. That is, may the Lord show uh, chesed, loving kindness, faithfulness, covenant loyalty to you. Those two things, you can't find them anywhere else but in the land of Israel in, this day, in that day and age. And so it's almost as if she's saying to them, if we're reading between the lines, you do have to come with me to get these good things. And yet her whole argument explicitly is, is trying to push them away, it seems. That's where a lot of this ambiguity comes in. But at the end of the day, Orpah and Ruth are challenged by something that makes perfect sense, that Naomi is too old to bear sons, 
that even if she could bear sons, by the time those sons were old enough to marry those women, they would be too old to bear sons. And so there's really no material hope in going with Naomi back to Bethlehem. Why would they go with her? Either because of her, and she destroys that notion, or because of her God. And that's what's left. She strips away the sense that she could benefit them at all, leaving only God. That's the only reason that they could go with her, because they believe that the God of Israel is better than the God of Moab, than the gods worshipped in Moab. And so we see faith challenged by what makes more sense, but then proven in sincere and steadfast profession. Look at verse 14 with me. They lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. What's suggested here is that Orpah listens to Naomi, in Naomi's words anyway, and returns back to Moab, and we don't see her anymore. But Ruth clung to her. Orpah did what made sense in the world. But Ruth exercised faith. And then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and, and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you. Do not pressure me. Don't badger me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything, but death parts you and me. These are some of the most remarkable and memorable words in Scripture. Even Chris Tomlin wrote a whole song out of this passage. And they're beautiful words. I think they rank right up there with Joshua's words, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay or lodge, I will lodge. And literally, your people, my people. Your God, my God. She even seals it with an oath. May the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. And I love verse 18 because it's, it's just it's something you can really picture. And them standing there on the road, Naomi stops. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. She gave up the fight. She said, all right, you're coming with me. You're coming with me. Here, we see, we've already seen Naomi's faith, hearing a good report, responding in faith, going back to Bethlehem. And here we see Ruth's faith. We don't know where it came in in her life, but yet it's expressed so clearly. And it's expressed not only in deeds of going with Naomi back to Bethlehem, but it's expressed in word. And that should challenge us. Aren't we, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you do, in fact, hold him to be your Savior, aren't we then um, called upon at various times and various situations to profess that faith? When we bring new members into the church, one of the ways we do that is through profession of faith in Christ or reaffirmation of faith in God. When we baptize our children, we baptize them and the parents are asked, to confess their faith in Jesus Christ. 
when we're challenged at work or in our families, we are called upon to confess that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of His saving grace and mercy in our lives, and that we, we will cling and hold fast to Him as long as we shall live even into eternity to come. Nothing but death would separate Ruth from Naomi. Well, not even death can separate a true believer from his interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this interest is, is sealed in faith. It's proven in a sincere and steadfast profession of faith. And now we come to the third part of our passage this evening. We've seen bold faith along the way. Now the scene changes in verse 19, showing us the humility of faith in the city of Bethlehem. Look at verse 19 with me. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem, and when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Literally, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi or pleasant, since the Lord has witnessed or testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. In this picture of faith, having been fleshed out along the way, we see that faith submits humbly to the will of God, submits humbly to the will of God, and then also that faith, this side of of glory lacks the whole picture of God's plan. First, submitting humbly to the will of God. One of you asked me last week what I thought of these verses and what Naomi says. If she's an embittered woman and she's a sinner, basically, for saying, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And after studying it some this past week in particular, I say that the text doesn't condemn Naomi for saying these words, and so neither should we. The text also doesn't really exalt her for these words, and so neither should we imitate this particular uh, way of approach. But, but what I will say is that Naomi, in, in speaking this, confesses her humility that she's been humbled under the hand of God. In this way, Naomi is called by some commentators the female Job. She's been afflicted. God has chastened her, and she has been emptied out without a hope in the world apart from God himself. She has been humbled. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. This month, by some, is called Pride Month. That is the polar opposite for a whole host of reasons, but for one reason in particular I'm going to point out, the polar opposite of what is to be our posture in the world as recipients of God's grace. Brothers and sisters, we are not to be proud, especially not in a boastful, arrogant way, seeking to puff up ourselves and make us something that we're not. We are to be humbled under the hand of God. Sometimes he humbles us in life circumstances, the loss 
of beloved brothers and sisters, parents and children and friends, or poverty or famine or whatever affliction visits us. We are to be humbled, recognizing that whatever good we receive comes from God's hand, and whatever great tri- um, difficulty we receive, likewise, comes from His hand, that He is awesome in power, majestic in might, and we bow ourselves before Him in humility. Pictured for us in Philippians chapter 2, even the Lord of glory humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. But what Naomi also shows us about this humility of faith is that she doesn't have the whole picture. She does say something that's not strictly true. She says, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Did she really come back empty? I think she's going to be surprised later on in the story. In verse 22, the very next verse, the narrator tells us, so Naomi returned, and with her... Ruth the Moabites, with her, Ruth the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. Naomi comes back home to the house of bread. She says that she's empty. She's been humbled by the Lord. But she has a resource that she doesn't realize how valuable um, to her Ruth is. Later on, we'll be told about Ruth that uh, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to a child, a boy who then will be placed on Naomi's lap and raised as her own son. This dear Ruth is of inestimable worth and value to Naomi. We're going to see why in the chapters to come. Naomi lacks the whole picture of God's plan. Now, in your affliction and in my affliction, when we're pressed down from without and we're feeling God's hand upon us heavily, just remind yourself, you lack the whole picture. The resources that God will use to to rescue you, to redeem you, to bless you, may be close at hand, like Ruth the Moabites was to Naomi, or maybe not. Maybe there's nothing, no indication at all that you have anything uh, to help you out in those times of need. But yet, true humility, the true humility of faith, recognizes and will confess, I don't have the whole picture here. Do I trust God anyway? He has no obligation to commit to us knowledge which is beyond us. In fact, He frequently blesses us by revealing to us the truth in due time and not prematurely. And so this is a very important aspect of our faith that we need to inculcate in ourselves and, and, and preach to ourselves. I don't know it all. I'm not in control of it all. God's up to something, and I don't know what it is. What's the consequence if you don't have, have that posture toward what's going on? Self-righteousness, forcefulness, uh, all manner of, of lack of wisdom. But the truly wise man says... I know not what the Lord may do, but I know that He is good, that He's faithful, that He's kind, that He's up to something for my good and His glory. Easier said than done. But these narratives are given to us precisely to encourage us that we're not alone in this struggle, and yet 
we are called to put our trust in God. And this is where risk enters in, at least from our perspective. If you want to fix something yourself, perhaps for the first time ever, would you go into the project without asking for help? Let's say you broke a vase and you wanted to fix it using the kintsugi method I mentioned earlier. I mean, even my description of it, it sounds really, really hard, doesn't it? got to get the right mix of precious metals and lacquer. You have to get the pieces to hold together. I, I wouldn't want to mess with that. But if you were to take on that project, whom would you trust to guide you through the process? Would you put your faith in a novice like me who had only ever watched some videos about it or perhaps read an article or a book on it? Or would you rather put your faith in a master artist who just moved into your neighborhood from Japan and had a whole house full of these things? My friends, the master artist can speak with authority from experience with proven expertise and knowledge. But when we consider the brokenness in our own lives, usually wrought by our own hand in sin, when we consider the difficulties we face, either as a consequence of the sin around us or the sin that bubbles up within us, in whom will you place your trust and your faith? In a novice? Some self-help guru who really cannot understand what it is you go through? Or in the living God? who sees all, even into the very depths of your soul. The good news, out of Bethlehem anyway, is that this living God has come down and dwelt among us, has taken on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. That he has wrought redemption full and free by his blood shed on the cross so that you and me and all of us who put our faith and trust in him might live and not perish. That though we have been afflicted and chastened, yet we are being built up in him through faith. This is the good news. And we're looking forward, even now, as we go through this series in Ruth, to a picture of that Redeemer. We will see his forefather, Boaz, and the redemption wrought literally, quite literally, for Ruth and Naomi through this man. And as we go through this, we ought always to be reminded of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who is at work even now interceding on our behalf that we might realize more and more the restorative ministry of his Father wrought in us by his word and spirit. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.